Hello, you've tuned in to a podcast series about people all born after World War II who were members of the Communist Party of Australia, the CPA, which wound up over 30 years ago. I'm Stephen Ricks, one of those former members of the CPA, and I was born in 1957. This is episode 6, and in this episode we start to look at why the CPA voted to dissolve and what it saw were the imperatives to that dissolution. Adam Farrow suggests a number of reasons for the demise of the CPA. Some are related to the history of communism internationally, and some to domestic factors. And, this is an important point made by Adam, the connection between the international and the domestic. The reason that the decision was made to dissolve the party, there were two, two reasons. One is that there were a set of hopes, aspirations about the transformation of society that was part of the whole party reason for its establishment and its, its goals all along, even though there were quite significant changes along those, that path. And I think some of that was dependent on the creation of a mass movement for change. And I think it became very apparent that the party was struggling to even look like returning to the, its high point. Um, it was a party in decline. And if that was going to be the case, then you needed to draw a line under it and see if you could find something better. And the second was that sense that there was a lot of history and baggage associated with the Communist Party. If that was a blockage to the kinds of uh, support, mass support, wide appeal, um, then something different that didn't carry that baggage with it might work better. Um, so that was a sort of a bit of a, a push and a pull. Um, the kinds of things that the party did, the things that attracted me to it, the sense of excitement um, of a really broad approach to society about engagement in, in change at all sorts of levels, that was never, in my mind, and I don't think in anyone else's, seen as a failure. It was the failure to get the mass support for a social transformation. Um, and to some extent, it, as I said, that there was some baggage. And I think that baggage was, after all, we weren't long after the so-called end of history, um, which curiously enough decided not to end. Yes. Um, which even its proponent has said, oh, so I got that wrong. <laughs> um, the, but there's no doubt that um, the ongoing understanding about the failings of the Soviet Union, even more well beyond the kind of uh, Khrushchev uh, discoveries, 
Um, so it was possible to go, Stalin was a problem, but Stalin was Stalin. The project remains the same, but the recognition of the sort of really quite profound economic failures of the Soviet Union, um, despite the things which I think we would still want to, want to hang on to and, and value, um, meant it, it really did feel, so it wasn't about the tear down that wall, uh, Mr. Gorbachev kind of stuff, it was about the transformation inevitably meant an end of the model that had always been the guiding light. Even when we were no longer pro-Soviet, there was no sense, no, I mean, you couldn't avoid it. It was part of our history, it was part of the world worldview, and it wasn't wasn't something that that could be seen to have been a success. And that just made it so much harder to win any kind of mass support for social change. Jackie Whitten also considers the weight of the international history of communist parties meant that recruitment was always difficult. But for Jackie, and indeed for all those I have interviewed, and for myself, there is no resiling from the need for fundamental social change. Well, I think there were, you know, it was dwindling involvement and dwindling membership. And, you know, there, I think, you know, at that time in the 90, 1990 to, you know, when it did dissolve in 91, there was a questioning of the role of such a party and how to keep, how, in my view, and I wasn't, you know, centrally involved in this sort of decision making at all, but, you know, like, I think what came out to me was that how, how do you keep hold of a name like the Communist Party? when, you know, the, even the, um, the parts that you may have agreed or not agreed with it, but they're all dissembling, you know. That, so, so I think there was sort of like a global imperative in a way that was impacting how people thought about it and what relevance the, the sort of the name really gave to, um, to that structure. It's sort of like even now when I say, you know, I was in the Communist Party to people, I sort of have to, I feel like I have to explain it, you know, mm. that it wasn't, you know, the Stalinist sort of version of it. And um, so I think that was very hard. I think there was sort of like a a move around, like not not people not wanting to be in such a sort of structure in a party. I mean, the... Um, I mean, I, just to go on to the next one, I, I think that, sorry, the imperatives to dissolve it, I think are probably still there. I mean, I wouldn't join a communist party now. Mm. Something was called the Communist Party. Um, not because I don't believe in the foundations of it, but I just think that naming is really important, you know, and... Um, so, and I did remain active until it dissolved. I was there at the last, to the last minute. And I partly because I was so attached, it was so significant for me. Mm-hmm. And I was so attached to it, you know, like I had met people that I would not have ever met had I not been in the Communist Party. A bit like teaching, you know, you meet people you've never met. <laughs> like a sort of, you get to tell it's a, and, um, and I was, I was disappointed really because I liked, the party structure, 
but it wasn't attracting people, you know. And um, and so I wanted to keep a connection with it, and that's why I joined Search from the beginning. Chris Lloyd refers to something often overlooked in considering Australia as a unified polity, and that is the strong regional or state differences which are observable in all national organisations. Chris identifies these differences as one of the reasons for the demise of the CPA. Well, I'll say this um, directly and deliberately. I think there were different messages sent to different groups. I think there was a game with the left's tendency you know, where the left tendency, which was nominally an area I dabbled with, Bob Gerbridge and so on, the, there were games played at the national leadership level that sent messages in different ways. Most spectacularly, there had always been a different message to Victoria. Victoria had been allowed for far too long to run a race that was dancing so close to collaboration, class collaboration. I found it very hard to stomach. And I think that that was our problem. We did. We were no longer a unified, and we'd allowed a situation, again, I say, way back to the 1960s and 70s, we'd allowed a situation where there were two parties. A party that had already decided it was going to be part of the Labor Party, it maybe hadn't got that consciously up in its head, but that's what it was doing. And as I mixed heavily with Victorians, both in the metal workers and in student politics, I knew they weren't communists in the sense I understood communists. And I'm being a bit primitive there, but I think you take my meaning. So it was a new left parties or renewal renewal within the Communist Party was a stillborn project because this monster had developed and was fracturing the nation anyway, and the nation's Communist Party, Victoria. I'm not saying the devil incarnate, but they were so different to what I'd experienced in Western Australia or in New South Wales. Uh, they, I found that in caucuses which decided leadership positions in things like AUS and then later on in the Metal Workers Union, I found, I found left opposition to the Communist Party to be more sensible than the Communist Party sometimes. Mark Ricks refers to the legacy of Soviet-style communism in explaining the demise of the CPA. And he also points out that the legacy of Soviet communism continues to be felt in Eastern Europe 30 years after the end of the USSR. Uh, I, I opposed the dissolution of the party at the time, but even at the time, even and what, what, while I opposed the dissolution of the party, I could see that its um, days were numbered. There, there wasn't much because of the the historical link of socialism with the um, um, Soviet Union with Soviet socialism. Um, it was always a millstone around um, the party's neck. And after the um, crumbling of the Berlin Wall and those sorts of developments, it became um, the. the the party's continued existence became untenable, I think. And but while the party 
split from Soviet commun communism and all that sort of thing, it, it was never, nevertheless always, um, I, I don't want to use the word contaminated, but there's no, I can't think of any um, alternative contaminated by that association and by the horrors of Stalinism. And, and, and more generally of, of the, the Soviet style of communism. And we can we see now in 2021 in, in Eastern Europe the, the, the legacy, the appalling legacy of all that. Michael Evans also refers to the legacy of Soviet communism on the life and health illness of the CPA and he offers some interesting perspectives on what could have been an alternative path. Mm. Mm. Look, I, I think it was a victim of history as much as anything else and a, and a question of timing to, to some extent. Um, it had been clear for a while that the uh, party wasn't attracting a new generation of, um, uh, of activists, people who didn't really see the party as being relevant. People were far more interested in being involved organically in social movements than they were in being, didn't see the necessity or the attraction of being in a political party. Um, the Soviet Union had just collapsed. The Berlin Wall was in the process of coming down. Um, it really did have a sort of ring of end of days to it, I think, for um, the, the left in general in many ways. Um, I, I was working full time for the party at the time. I was the the last, you know, national organizer, um, and was on the national committee, the national executive. So I was very much a part of those decisions that were made, um, or the recommendations that were made to take the party in the direction it went, to look at setting up a new political party, and eventually to dissolve the communist party. Um, I, I think it was probably the right decision at the time. Um, I hark, uh, I, I hanker for a sort of rom a bit of a romantic notion that maybe we could have put the party into hibernation um, for several years and then would you be able to crank it up again a few years later um, when it became clear that there was probably still a need for it? Uh, because to answer that question, yes, I think there is a um, there would be a real relevance now. Um, the number of people who say to me or have said to me over the last 30 years, gee, I wish we still had the Communist Party to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and in many ways, it would be it would be good. Um, and maybe we have found some new generations of people who would be um, interested in that sort of approach to politics. Um, yeah, it, it makes for interesting speculation, I think. Romain Ratnam is another former member who believes that what people had observed of Soviet communism meant that anything with that name had no broad appeal and that what was already a small party would continue to decline. But it is also clear in Romain's explanation that a decision taken for rational reasons also has personal, emotional consequences. And I agree. I can only tell you 
how I felt. I, I believe I was at the National Committee meeting when I voted to dissolve the party with tears streaming down my face. I, I was upset about that decision, mainly for people like Sally and others who had devoted their whole life to this organization. My imperative was that the name communist was a total barrier to our getting our views across about what a democratic socialist party could be and could offer people. I felt that we had absolutely no way of um, combating either the fear or the sheer uh, um, what what's the word the 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 mass media is just setting us aside as of no account we were so small by that stage there was no way that we could break through that barrier and I I think that still applies Mike Davis puts the decline of the Communist Party in the context of the decline of another collectivist institution, the trade union movement. Mike's view is that the demobilisation of labour on the one hand and the reliance on institutional structures on the other led to a general decline of the left, the CPA included. I must admit that uh, at the time, it seemed like a, uh, uh, a rational decision. But you had the international movement where um, in Europe, where you had the, uh, the, the communist movement uh, trying to reinvent itself as uh, anti-Stalinist. So I think there was that the growth of the um, Euro-communism approach that, uh, that actually had a, an influence on our thinking. Then there was the, um, the accord and the idea that we could actually uh, institutionalise a lot of the means of improving working conditions and social provisions, et cetera, et cetera, without recognising something that I, that I mentioned before, that... Within the, uh, without seeing creeping neoliberalism, without understanding the politics of neoliberalism, which was not new, it was uh, it's something that caused the 1890s depression, First World War, da 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 da. Mm. But it, uh, but it did actually, um, it enabled, for instance, the unions to take the troops off the streets and and put the representatives into the courts. Mm. And unfortunately, we just have this. Um, so I, I think that that idea of of actually um, justice through the system really was very poor analysis in retrospect, and and it ignored the uh, the need to gain power to uh, to do the sort of things like they did. Um, we were publishing excerpts of Red Bologna. For example, when mm. I was in the party branch, you may remember that. Mm. And uh, it was the communist uh, 
administration in Bologna that uh, made the the buses go in the contra direction to the traffic so the traffic wouldn't slow them down. <laughs> it was a no-brainer. And it, they made them comfortable, cheap, reliable, da-da-da-da. But they had the power to do so, whereas we have relied on uh, smooth talking from either the ACTU or wherever it happens to be. And I don't think that that's really... Uh, uh, I think that that was a mistake. And so I think we, we headed off in that particular direction where I think increasingly we became suckered in um, ourselves by neoliberalism. And, uh, and we didn't have the, uh, the forces to, uh, to fight back, but we thought that we could. And in the meantime, you know, 17% union density. Philippa Hall spoke about internally competing visions of the nature of the party when discussing reasons for its dissolution. Philippa notes how these competing visions had implications for the way in which membership would be construed, and all while membership was declining. Yeah, well, I, I think it's very interesting, really, because I think I only had a very sketchy understanding of what was going on, really. Um, and obviously the issue that the party membership was always declining and uh, there was always there were always some issues about, um, you know, financial sustainability. Um, there was also um, the, the issues about um, what kind of control the party could actually exercise over um, members and their political activities and, you know, the tremendous... And, like, um, as, as in, in this period... Uh, that it was there was very much kind of well what's the relationship going to be like between um, the Communist Party and the Labor Party and the union movement mm. um, and you know with what Labor were actually trying to do in terms of um, you know bringing about kind of uh, a great deal of economic change um, much of which doesn't look so good. Um, but, um, you know, what, what it was really about from the people who were, you know, really better informed and more influential than I was, um, I, I don't know. I just it sort of, in a way, I can remember it kind of came as a bit of a shock to me. Like I, I just had thought things were just going to keep going and <clears throat> that it wouldn't matter too much that there weren't that many of us um, because we were more interested in um, sort of trying to talk to people about things and trying to get people to get together to do things. And it, 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 um, in many respects, it didn't actually matter if they were party members or not. There wasn't any kind of, <clears throat> there wasn't anything tight um, about what um, being a party member really meant. And people were always kind of trying to involve 
other people in activities rather than in uh, membership. You've been listening to the voices of members of the Communist Party of Australia, all born after World War II. In Episode 7, we'll also hear people talking about why the Communist Party voted to dissolve. Comrades, the book marking the 100th anniversary of the formation of the CPA is available from your favourite bookshop or the Search Foundation. Dr Mick Patton provided invaluable technical assistance. See you next time.